This episode contains descriptions of real, violent crimes. It's nine o'clock. Security's working fast to get through the 30 metre long line of people. The queue goes out the doors, down the ramp, and along the footpath. TV crews wait for the striding in confidently or walking out angry shots for the evening news. They're alongside bunches of people sucking hard on cigarettes. The ground floor lobby's filled with barristers, solicitors and police. Defendants and victims, friends and family of each. Tank tops, hoodies and borrowed suit jackets mingle with silk ties and the clip-clop of expensive shoes, often pulling trolleys or suitcases filled with documents. There's plenty of tension, hands twitching, people with sewing machine legs staring at the opposite wall, Lawyers and clients huddle in strategic discussion. The Coke machine's getting a workout. The daily hearing list is pinned to the wall behind four large glass panels. Today, hundreds of Victorians will have their day in court. Above us are 30 courtrooms, each churning through tens of cases every day. The magistrate's court is the first level, the entry level to the Victorian justice system. This is where 90% of all cases are heard including traffic infringements and intervention orders, to committal hearings for more serious criminal offences, which will then be sent to higher courts. If you've ever attended a court in Victoria, it was probably here. But if you've never been to court, this is the one you probably imagine. The other side of William Street, the grand 19th century building, which is the Supreme Court of Victoria. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. And they shall be heard. And they shall be heard. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. but the truth. I'm Greg Muller. I'm Evan Martin. This is Gertie's Law, a podcast series from the Victorian Supreme Court. Meet the people who work here, hear from judges and see what goes into their complex decisions. I think the community look at this building, they walk past it every day. They have really little idea about what goes on in the building. Not much appreciation of the kind of work that we do. We need to find ways of bringing the community in. That's Justice Champion former Director of Public Prosecutions and recently appointed Supreme Court Judge. When I sit on the bench, you look around with some fantastic cases, full of drama and full of importance. You look up and see the seats are empty. You might think you know this court. Thousands pass it every day, it's in the news most nights, but how well do you really know it? For starters, it's not just in Melbourne. This court sits in 12 regional centres across the state. The judges, reserve judges, associate judges and judicial registrars deal with more than 6,000 matters every year. So despite the quiet, it's a busy place. The daily hearing list, published online every day, regularly shows at least 30 matters. Trials, pleas, directions hearings, sentences, terrorism and murder cases. Horrific stories play out here all the time. It can be a place of violence and death. 
You've been found guilty by a jury. Your offending was extremely serious. And your actions were callous and brutal. One of the stab wounds was 12 centimetres deep and lacerated his thigh muscles. Ultimately covering her head with a bag and then binding it tightly with duct tape so that it was completely covered. You gave her no chance to breathe nor survive. Overall, I'm guarded about your prospects of rehabilitation. Would you stand up, please? Particularly having regard to your long history of substance abuse. In all the circumstances, the sentence that I will impose upon you is a period of imprisonment for 30 years. Section 11A of the Act requires me to fix a non-parole period of at least 70% of the head sentence imposed upon you, unless it is in the interest of justice. But the vast majority of cases aren't criminal. There's the common law division, family disputes over wills, defamation, and even a university student contesting their marks. There's the commercial court, where millions of dollars are at stake every day. And when there's questions as to whether a trial was conducted fairly and whether the law was correctly applied, these go to the Court of Appeal. While the result that we reach might be obvious from our decisions, I'm not sure that why we've reached the result is always as clear. That's the current Chief Justice at a welcome ceremony in 2017. In serving the community as Chief Justice, I will treat it as part of my responsibility to do everything that I can to make sure that what judges do, how we do it, and why we make the decisions that we do is easily understood by all people. My name's Anne Ferguson and I'm the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Victoria. We sit at a small, round, white table in the Chief Justice's chambers. The polished floorboards and modern minimalist furniture make it feel like a renovated Melbourne terrace. The Chief Justice is the first judge, I suppose, of the state of Victoria and she has a number of roles. First it's as the head of this court, the Supreme Court of Victoria, but she also has a lot of other roles as well. So for example, the courts are supported by an administrative body and I head that administrative body. There's a commission that deals with complaints against judges and magistrates and I'm the head of that body. And then there's another body that's the Judicial College and that's what teaches the judges. So it's an education body and I'm the head of that body. So do you still sit on cases? I do sit on, on some cases, absolutely. I have to have a role in the courtroom. People expect the Chief Justice to be sitting on cases and expect her really to be sitting on the most important and serious cases. The Supreme Court sits at the top of Victoria's justice system, one of the independent pillars of democracy, along with the legislature, the parliament and the executive, the public servants who administer the laws made by parliament. The three arms of government are really each very significant and very important to make sure that we've got a democracy and there can be tensions between the three arms of government at time, but that's a good thing so that you haven't got just one part of the system. You don't end up in a totalitarian system because you've got one person making all the decisions about what the law should be, how it should be enforced and how it should be applied. And that's really our three arms. Despite it being a healthy tussle, the relationship the judiciary has with the other pillars of democracy isn't always an easy one to manage. But having said that, of course, if whoever the government is after the election... That's Justice Lex Lazary at a politics and crime conference in Melbourne. If they 
um, introduce a regime of strict mandatory sentencing, well, the courts will simply have to deal with it. Justice Whelan started working here as a Supreme Court judge in 2004. He was appointed to the Court of Appeal in 2012. Our job is to enforce the laws that the Parliament passes and to pass judgment on facts and circumstances that the state, through the prosecuting authorities, brings to the court as an independent institution, independent of the police, independent of the politicians, uh, independent of the prosecuting authorities. Once we've done that, we really don't think it's our role to say anything more. It's not our role to enter into a public debate about what the laws ought to be or what Parliament ought to do about any particular situation, whether the police should do this or that. Trouble is, nowadays, there's political significance placed upon what we do, so we find ourselves embroiled in it, whether we like it or not. (laughs) Which brings us to the fourth pillar, the media. Justice Reardon. You will never read in the Herald Sun, or any other paper for that matter, the paper saying... Justice Reardon got the sentence right again. Justice Whelan agrees. Uh, that'll never be a headline. And I know that, I know that. Everything is okay has never been a story, and it never will be. <laughs> it never will, except in, I don't know, probably in um, totalitarian countries, there are lots of stories about what a great job the judges are doing, but I don't think there is in any, <laughs> in any democratic uh, country. This tension often plays out publicly after high-profile cases or during election campaigns. But the question is, does this erode trust in the system? Chief Justice Ferguson. If you don't have that level of confidence in the general community, it's a downward spiral really, and it really will attack the foundations of our democracy. It's not a question of having blind faith in institutions. I don't think you should, but it is important that people feel that there is a court that is going to apply the laws in the same way to whoever comes before them without fear or favour. We all take an oath to do that. We've spent the past six months at the court, sitting in on cases, exploring and getting lost in the building's narrow, bluestone passageways and staircases, and meeting the people who work here. The first thing that strikes you is the smell, like an old house in desperate need of an open window. You can't escape the sense of history reverberating from these long corridors. It's not hard to imagine Justice W.J. Shute putting on the black cap and sentencing Colin Ross to death in 1922 for the gun alley murder of a 12-year-old Alma Chertsky. This happened in Court 4, and it looks pretty much the same now as it did then. Ross was later pardoned following an opinion by Justice Teague, Cummins and Coldry of this court in 2006, 86 years after his execution. One of Australia's longest and most sensational cases, the Pajama Girl mystery, was the earliest example in Australia of dentistry being used to identify the victim. It took 10 years for Linda Agostini's body to be identified, and it was her husband, Tony Agostini, who was then convicted of manslaughter in 1944. This all played out in court four, in front of Justice Lowe. Convicted murderer Jean Lee, the last woman hanged in Australia, also heard her fate in court four from Justice Gavin Duffy in 1950. Lee became hysterical after her verdict was announced and was sedated. She was again sedated at her execution six months later and had to be placed on a chair 
above the trapdoor at the gallows. She was hanged at 8am, 9th of February, 1951. Justice John Stark sentenced Ronald Ryan to death here in 1966. Ryan was the last person to be legally executed in Australia. The Menhennet ruling, R versus Davidson, or Australia's Roe versus Wade, determined the legality of abortions here in 1969. She tried to escape from you and you chased her. Clearly, you overpowered this relatively petite woman, but she tried valiantly to fight you. The evidence of her attempt to resist you, showing in her finger drag marks, which were located on the centre island, as she held tight to anything she could find, including the ground, to stop you dragging her away from the light and what should have been safety. Scott Miller, who brutally raped and murdered a woman in Melbourne's King's Domain, was sentenced by Justice Betty King in 2015. I direct that you are to be sentenced as follows. Charge one, rape, 13 years. Charge two, rape, 13 years. Charge three, murder, 29 years. I direct that charge three is the base sentence. And I direct that two years of the sentence. Gangland members were regulars here in the 1990s and 2000s. Actor Rebel Wilson's defamation case was heard here in 2017, as was the appeal, which reduced her payout from $4.56 million to $600,000. The first really notorious case would be the deeming ones, um, the, the serial killer, the baby, the, the family underneath the fireplace at Windsor killer. Joanne Boyd and Nicole Lithgow are the court's archivists. They know pretty much all there is to know about this building, its history, the cases, well, anything really. Frederick Deeming is particularly interesting because he was um, believed by many to be Jack the Ripper. Um, So he's famous for being a reasonably, at times, robust theory that he was Jack the Ripper. We know it's not the case now, but there was a long time where that, that was considered to be a possibility. And a note. Despite Court 4 being colloquially known as the Kelly Court, Ned died in 1880, four years before this court even opened. The, the joy of the Ned Kelly myth is that it just takes a life of its own. And so people want things to desperately be related to Kelly. So Redmond Barry, the judge at the Kelly trial, and who was also instrumental in designing this building, also never set foot in here. He died two weeks after Kelly was executed. As Ned predicted, when Sir Redmond Barry sentenced Ned to death, he said the customary words, May God have mercy on your soul. To which Kelly replied, I'll go a little further than that and say I'll see you there where I go. There are stories of ghosts here as well. Joanne and Nicole again. There is the ghost. They're meant to be in court for. And it's not surprising they're in court four because court four is the criminal, main criminal one. It's where all of the really bad cases have been heard and it would be a place if anything was going to hang around. It was one of the judges who I never thought was subject to flights of fantasy. One of the criminal judges said to me once, he'd gone back into court four after everybody left to collect some papers off the bench and he swears he saw a small boy in there. He, he was convinced that that's what he'd seen and that that wouldn't surprise me. One of the cleaners apparently had a story about someone coming 
a woman, wasn't it, whooshing yes. past her as she came in to clean the courtroom early one morning. So I'm not It's surprised. also frightfully cold, so you can sort of feel that chilly, ghostly presence just on any given morning in July, because really, <laughs> yes. it is a frightfully cold building with all of the stone. Supreme Court predates Federation, which is a very significant part of its history. That is, it, it emerged, it started with the colony uh, and has grown with the colony and has always been part of the colony. It's always been a local court. In the early 1850s, the Supreme Court of Victoria was established and we had our own uh, resident judges. That's Appeal Court Judge Justice Nile. It's no accident that this court stands where it does on this side of the CBD. It's significant, I think, that the building is here at this end of town, uh, away from the Parliament at the other end of town at, at Spring Street. On opposing hills, with a clear line of sight at the time, a physical representation of the Westminster system and the separation of powers. Justice Dixon. No, that's right. And, and um, the Parliament was intended to have a dome that was never built. Um, and, of course, we've got a dome. And the exhibition buildings has got a dome. And the domes were all supposed to speak to each other from the various hills across the town. This building's up on a hill. There's two hills if you think about Melbourne. So there's the hill that Parliament House is on, and that's one end of the city, and then this is the other end of the city here. And so it was built on deliberately on this kind of hilltop, but we had a really nice view of over to the bay and everything like that. If you see the photos, we were by far the tallest building. At the time, Melbourne would have been um, under a fair bit of construction because it is um, getting towards the end of the gold rush. A lot of money around, um, rivers of gold, uh, as, as discovered under Ballarat and Bendigo. By about the yeah. 1870s and 80s, it was indeed one of the worst. But one of the other wealthiest was Manchester. It's Manchester in England and Melbourne. But we were by far and away the most wealthiest one of the most wealthiest cities in the British Empire, <laughs> which is worth remembering. Although the building still looks much the same as it did in the 1880s, though it's now surrounded by high-rises, the way people interact with this court has changed a lot. If you go back to when this court was built, there was no television, no movies. For entertainment, people would come to the courts and they would watch the cases and they would watch the leading barristers perform and they would watch the salacious murder trials and invariably the public galleries of the courts were full. Justice John Dixon. That is mostly not the case anymore. There are some cases that that will fill the the galleries for sure, but generally they're, they're quiet and unoccupied so that the way that... Uh, the community finds out about the court really is through media reporting and often the only extra people who'll be there, apart from those immediately associated with the parties, will be members of the press. Despite the popularity of true crime books and now podcasts, rarely do people come here to see it play out for real. Indeed, many people are no longer aware they can. Well, I was kind of freaked out, to be frank. So I just came off the street and and, uh, next minute I'm sitting like two or three metres from a serial killer. That's Barney McCall, the composer for this series. So after agreeing to this job, Barney came in for some inspiration. Did you know you could do that? I had no idea. And actually, I'm thinking it would be great to bring my children in, not to, not to see a serial killer, but just to get a sense of, of, of the sort of grandiosity of the, of the whole place, you know? I mean, it's quite an intense place and there's, there's serious things going on and, and it's, 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 
It's, it's very confronting, I have to say. People's lives are at stake. The divisions of the court, so there are three trial divisions. The um, commercial court, which deals with, unsurprisingly, commercial matters. The criminal division, which deals with the criminal matters that we handle. And then the common law division, which is basically everything else. And then there's the court of appeal, where if your trial division has made a decision and people aren't happy with it, they can go to the court of appeal to have that decision reviewed within some limits. I'm Justice Elizabeth Hollingworth, Principal Judge in the Criminal Division. Justice Hollingworth's chambers act as a beacon to any newcomer getting lost in this maze of a building. It's the one with the large palm tree and a toy monkey hanging from a branch. Look, we do see a lot of terrible things. Our main bread and butter work for the Criminal Division are homicides, so that's either murder or manslaughter, acts of great violence. The Criminal Division also deals with terrorism offences, and apparently treason too. I have no idea whether we've ever had one. We have exclusive jurisdiction for treason. It's certainly not happened in the time I've been on the court, uh, and I don't think I've read a report about it. I, I do think that perhaps some of the terrorist cases come to us almost on a quasi-treasonous basis, although they're not in fact treason. I think some of the thinking is that they involve effectively an assault on uh, the state, which is the modern equivalent, perhaps, of of treason, which was, as I understand it, was originally against uh, the king or the queen. We also do some very serious examples of white-collar crime uh, or other cases where there might be a legal point of principle that it would be better to have the Supreme Court uh, determine. But the county court is very much the trial workhorse court in terms of doing most of the drug cases, burglaries, robberies, sexual assaults, things of that sort. We would only get a case of that description if there was something quite unusual and complicated about it um, that required coming here to the Supreme Court. As part of that, we see both the best and the worst of human behaviour, actually. Uh, it's, it's both challenging and also a privilege, quite frankly, to, to get to see such a spectrum uh, of, uh, of the community. The baby farming murderess, Francis Knorr, gangster Squizzy Taylor, Mark Chopper-Reed, and more recently, James Demetrius Gargasoulis, who in 2017 killed six people when he drove through pedestrians on Burke Street. They've all passed through the criminal division here. It can be a distressing place. The work of the criminal division in this court can be emotionally very taxing. I think I've seen too much violent death apart from anything else. I've sentenced a significant number of people to usually very long sentences. It's only recently that any interest has been shown in the effect of a, judge, of a judge's work on their lives and their wellbeing, criminal trial judges in particular. For myself, I've become thoroughly used to much of it, although I do continue to be amazed at the way people can find new methods to torture and kill each other, including children. That's retired criminal judge Lex Lazary at his farewell speech in 2018. He's back as a reserve judge now, so we'll hear more from him in future episodes. Of the more than 6,000 cases in the Supreme Court in the 2016-17 year, 40% were in the Common Law Division. 
That's compared with only 150 in the criminal division, or about 2.5% of cases. So I'm, I'm Kevin Bell, Justice Kevin Bell. I'm in the Common Law Division, I also sit in the, in the Criminal Division and I sit in the Commercial Court as well. Common Law is, generally speaking, judge-made law. It evolved essentially in, in England. It's the foundation of the legal system in so-called Common Law countries, and Common Law countries include Canada, well, virtually the whole Commonwealth. Common Law is like sedimentary rock, made from layers upon layers of decisions by judges built up over centuries. It's the law of the commons as opposed to the law legislated by Parliament. So the, the law of tort, you must not assault somebody, you must take care of your neighbour, you must not trespass upon somebody else's land, you must not trespass upon somebody else's goods. These are all principles which have evolved socially and become principles of law because uh, judges have recognised those principles as part of the the customary law that governs our, our ordinary life with each other. And so over time, uh, what began as custom, really uh, a rule of a relationship between people living in a community, evolved into a principle of law as enforced by judges. My name is Julie Clayton. I'm a Judicial Registrar in the Common Law Division. Do you want me to tell you what that means? Yeah. Okay, so the way I describe it to my friends who don't um, have any familiarity with the law is I say, I'm kind of like a very, very junior judge. The judge will hear the trial. Um, the associate judges will deal with smaller trials or the big applications, and I deal with the little things. You know, we describe ourselves as the go anywhere, do anything <laughs> division. And if I go anywhere, it's because we go on circuit all around country Victoria. And do anything, it's basically everything that doesn't fit within crime or commercial falls within the common law. So that ranges from personal injuries and dust diseases, which are um, some of our biggest lists. We have a lot of um, those cases. Everything from you know, slip and trip at a supermarket, work injury from a you know, heavy repetitive factory job to you know, medical negligence. You know, the court really is the mirror of the society in which it lives. There's also reviews of decisions made by other courts, tribunals and external bodies might be review of a decision by a university in a recent case where a young fella failed a particular assignment at Monash and sought to judicially review it. That's the sort of thing that might come in this court. You know, it stretches all the way from the person who didn't want to pay his $22.50 dog registration fee to the Wodonga Council because he didn't think that the Wodonga Council was legitimately entitled to actually charge him, all the way to really significant human rights cases. Justice Bell again. Victoria has a charter of uh, human rights which has brought the court into uh, an important area which it used not to be. And that jurisdiction comes within the common law division and forms an important part of its work. Cases involving human rights can quickly get complicated. I think that if you took a sort of poll down, you know, in the middle of Burke Street or at the local pub and said, do you care if Paul Haig has access to a set of tarot cards in prison? Paul Haig is a serial killer from the 70s who stabbed his girlfriend 157 times after his mate raped her at knife point. He also shot a 10-year-old boy. All up, he's killed seven people. He's currently in prison for life. He now wants tarot cards. I would imagine that there's not a great deal of community concern about that. I don't think he would have those rights. I shouldn't be entitled, I don't think. He doesn't deserve it. 
No. It's good that he's in prison if he killed people. I don't think he should get out of prison, but like, who cares if he's got tarot cards? It doesn't really affect anyone. So. I, I don't think he should get access to leisure activities. Like He's done his business and he should uh, be punished as much as possible, I reckon. Where you'll get a prisoner and they're saying, I've been denied access to tarot cards, I've become a pagan while I'm in prison, tarot cards are a part of my religious expression and I should be allowed to I should be allowed to practice it and the Department of Corrections will say, well these particular set of tarot cards show pictures of naked women. Now if I was a prisoner and I wanted a book of paintings in the Louvre, there would be plenty of paintings of naked women as well. Would they ban that? I don't know. But if you extrapolate out from that and say, well, is it is it a question of freedom of religion? Is it you know, do you support the notion that even the worst amongst us ought to be entitled to some basic human rights and even those who've been found guilty of the most heinous crimes ought to have um, access to religious material, there might be a different view about that. But if it was someone saying, well, I want a copy of the Bible, and correction said, well, you can't have a copy of the Bible because there's violent imagery in the Bible and there's discussions of beheadings and there's discussions of sex in the Bible and therefore it's a prohibited book. And took his sword and drew it out over the sheath thereof and slew him. And cut off his head. Samuel 17. Song of Solomon 1.13. to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Which it could well fit within the definition of a prohibited book, frankly. That would be, yeah, it would be pretty uh, inflammatory. Justice Dixon, Principal Judge of the Common Law Division, recently decided a high-profile human rights case against the Victorian Government. It was a certain children case, which I had the second round of it, uh, which was about the, uh, the use of the Grevillea unit at Barwon Prison for um, detaining children, uh, and that was run as a, as a human rights case. And um, ultimately, um, I ordered the government to shut it down and move the children out of there back into appropriate um, places for for detaining children and that's what they did they they accepted the decision and and it was it was closed down the common law division often comes to the public's attention when it deals with class actions all of the common law class actions generally involve what we call mass torts that is where somebody's committed a tort, they've been negligent, and there are masses of people who've suffered uh, as a result of that. And the best examples of them are the class actions that came out of Black Saturday. In Black Saturday, we had six class actions in the court, and there was overall uh, something like 14,400 roughly individual claims that were dealt with within those six those six proceedings. They all settled and it's really about managing cases to help people see where their risks are, where their rewards might lie and help them to negotiate a compromise. Otherwise cases run they become enormously expensive. The the Kilmore East Kinglake class action did run. Uh, It went for 208 days over a period of more than a year. It was a massive, huge trial, the biggest trial this court's uh, conducted by, by a country mile and uh, involved you know, hundreds of witnesses, 
lots of lawyers, lots of exhibits, and lots of experts too, trying to work out uh, whether there was negligence and who was at fault. But ultimately, the parties arrived at an arrangement between themselves and, and the case settled. And then there was a long process of administration of that settlement. There was half a billion dollars paid and all of the claims. In that particular case, there was about 1,900 claims for personal injury and dependency claims. That's the, uh, the claims from the uh, deceased estates because there was um, that particular fire, there was over 100 people killed. There's 173 people killed in the Black Saturday bushfires altogether. But there were thousands of people who were injured. Defamation cases also come here, recently sparking international interest. They're very interesting cases because you have the conflict of the freedom of speech, the right to freedom of speech and freedom of expression, up against the private right to uh, protection of one's reputation from an unfair uh, slandering or, or defamation. It's a complex balancing between those, those two rights and that's what takes place in a, in a defamation trial. There's a lot of defamation these days coming out of um, the internet, social media, um, but often that's at a smaller level than one sees with publication in, you know, in a major daily newspaper that circulates to hundreds of thousands of people a day and an internet publication might just be a comment on a Facebook site or a, a tweet that's redistributed perhaps to 20 or 30 people is only a small claim. The, the extent to which the, uh, the term that's used is the poison of the defamation has spread and often it spreads through what's called the grapevine effect. You never know where it's going to pop up that somebody has heard a defamatory slur against uh, a plaintiff who wants to be compensated for that. We've had cases here where there's been a publication on the internet, on blogs, that have attracted damages awards around the vicinity of 125 to 150000 and then there are cases like the Rebel Wilson case that attracted a damages award of 600000 The other court in the trial division is the commercial court. My name is Julian Hatchay. I'm a judicial registrar in the commercial court. The Commercial Court was established uh, four years ago as a standalone separate division of the Supreme Court. I think Victoria is unique uh, in that it, it is the only state with a dedicated Commercial Court. Yet we have really joined the ranks of other courts around the world who have, who have set themselves up in a similar way. So, for example, um, the United Kingdom and Wales Commercial Court, um, the Singapore International Commercial Court, the Abu Dhabi uh, Commercial Court and, and, and more recently the Netherlands Commercial Court. Our judges and our judicial officers, associate judges and judicial registrars who form part of the Commercial Court um, have got extensive commercial experience. And the idea is that it will reduce the number of pre-trial steps and therefore hopefully reduce the, the legal costs that will be incurred by the parties. And when you consider the amounts of money involved, what happens here affects the whole state. We looked at um, one particular financial year, the 2016-2017 financial year, 
and we worked out that just for the matters that end up being managed by judges, those cases alone involved claims worth about $3.3 billion. So um, that's a fairly significant number relative to the whole of the Victorian economy. But despite the commercial court dealing with more than 2,500 matters every year, it gets little media attention. The, the school groups sometimes come in and I think, you poor children, um, it, is, it can be like watching a chess game. It's, Justice Reardon, principal judge of the commercial court. Uh, for the parties, things are happening at a million miles an hour. There's strategies being undertaken to the informed observer. It's quite intriguing as you watch the way the parties are manoeuvring. But generally, it's by reference to documents. And if you don't know what's in the documents, you're not picking up the subtleties that that might be apparent to somebody who's crawling all over the detail. This commercial court differs in one important way. It moves faster. Time is money. And that's what's principally at stake here. In, for example, the criminal division, there's a great emphasis on the proper adoption and adherence to procedures because liberty is at stake. Here we tend to cut through procedures and we very quickly require parties to identify the real issue that's in dispute. The efficient resolution of commercial disputes is an important feature of any economy which business requires. In the same way the common law division acts like a mirror to society, the commercial court reflects the trends in the business world. A lot of cases arising from property development, and that's not surprising given all of the activity within the property market in Australia. We've also seen um, quite a few cases involving litigants from Asian countries, uh, particularly litigants who reside in Asian countries and have various business interests in Australia. So a classic example would be a, a business investment by uh, an overseas, say, uh, mainland Chinese party investment in an Australian business where there's an Australian-Chinese uh, counterpart um, and they have a falling out. Um, they raise a number of different considerations for the court. Often we notice that the, the cases involve very little by way of written documentation. So if a deal is done between the two parties, it's not always reduced to writing. You know, the court needs to, be, I think, be aware of those cultural considerations. The reality is we are living in a multicultural society and we're also living in a, a world where commerce is globalised and it means that people will move capital across borders, they will invest in businesses in other countries and we have to be responsive to that. Finally, the highest court here is the Court of Appeal. This is where judges' decisions can be overturned. (laughs) Hasn't happened to me yet. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. I mean, I do understand from other judges that um, it's part of the job. Justice Richards was appointed a Supreme Court judge in the Common Law Division in 2018. It happens to everyone. No one enjoys it when it does, but it helps to sort of understand that you are part of an overall system and An important part of that system is that error can be corrected by an appeal court. So I'm not looking forward to it when it does happen, but I'll have to deal with it when it does. And I'm I'm told by um, one very experienced judge who I respect that uh, it's quite liberating the first time you're appealed and overturned because 
it's happened then and then you know how bad it is <laughs> and you can just get on with it and, and live with it. It was certainly a memorable moment for Justice Bell. Do you remember the first time it happened to you? I certainly do. I certainly do. So I ran a, um, a long drug trial. Uh, it was a very heavy case. The, uh, I took the, took the trial to verdict, which is a, a significant achievement. That was good. It went on appeal. Uh, and, the, um, and the Court of Appeal, rightly in my view, held that I had not stopped the prosecutor from making a submission to the jury which the prosecutor should not have made. Now, the defence did not object to the submission, and I thought when this submission was being made that it was a bit odd, uh, and I expected a, a defence objection. I didn't get it, so I let it go through, and the convictions were overturned on that basis. Was the second time easier? <laughs> uh, I, can't remember, I can't remember the second time, but there have been several times since. Justice Priest was appointed to the Court of Appeal in 2012. Well, by definition, uh, somebody thinks something's gone wrong if they're coming to the Court of Appeal. Um, the appeal will generally then be heard by a bench of three or, in some circumstances, a bench of two. And we, I think, uh, cooperate pretty well with each other. And uh, often there'll be complete agreement so that there'll be a joint judgment. Uh, on occasions there are dissents so that you'll wind up with a split 2-1. If a case is heard by a bench of two and there's a disagreement, well, that's solved by bringing in a third member of the court usually to see, try and cut the Gordian knot. Appeal Court Judge, Justice Whelan. Yeah, that's right. We spend our lives correcting other people's homework. Mm. The reality is 97% of criminal sentences in the county and Supreme Courts are unchallenged or unchanged on appeal. They don't like it when you get overturned. I don't like it when I got overturned, and I got overturned lots of times, so I'm well qualified in that sense. If you're in crime and you're endeavouring to decide things fairly between the defence and the prosecution, you'll always get overturned on occasions because in the Court of Appeal we judge things according to whether there's been a miscarriage of justice looking at the thing in hindsight, and it's inevitable. Every criminal judge is going to be overturned. But look, it's a very good idea because we're all um, fallible, we're all capable of making mistakes, and a system where people are looking over everybody's shoulders is essential, really. Anyone exercising power that's not subject to review by others it will inevitably uh, abuse it, I would have thought. And by the way, um, we're not infallible here. We've, we've been known to be rolled by the High Court. Which is the check on this court. That's right, and that's, that's the system working, you see. That's uh, ensuring that, in the end, the quality of justice is very high. Regularly, the Supreme Court hits the road and goes to 12 regional centres, including Ballarat, Shepparton, Mildura and Bendigo, where I caught up with Justice Taylor, who was hearing a murder trial. This is the Supreme Court of Victoria, not the Supreme Court of Melbourne. And it's important that the court be seen to be exercising its jurisdiction throughout the state. But it's also really important for people who live in regional areas of Victoria that their access to the justice of the court is in their hometown and that things that occurred in their region are heard in their region and that it's exactly the same 
justice, the same process that's dispensed in Melbourne. So this trial has been um, listed in Bendigo uh, on, on these dates and I happen to be the judge that was allocated the file. But there's no strict rotor of whether who gets sent when to Bendigo or Wangaratta or Warrnambool, wherever the court might be sitting. It's great, isn't it? It's just every 15 minutes. It's fantastic. I know my chambers are in a clock tower. It's brilliant. And finally, who's Gertie? Overlooking the main entrance of the court on William Street, there's a statue of Lady Justice. The, the statue is the god Themis or Justitia. Themis or Justitia, depending on whether you're uh, a Greek or a Roman afar. But around here, she's known as Gertie. That's a complete mystery. Why is Gertie called Gertie? No idea. <laughs> Gertie differs from the Lady Justice over the road at the county court. Firstly, she's not blindfolded. And so why isn't she blindfolded? Well, justice isn't always blindfolded. She should be, some people say she should have her eyes open and her ears open as well. Redmond Barry didn't want her blindfolded. He felt she should be seeing what comes before her. Gertie is actually meant to be justice, but she's a bit lazy. Scales are sitting on her knee and she, is her sword resting by her side? She's holding the sword by her side. She's not actually standing, she's sitting. I'd not thought of it that way. Um, To me, she looks like she's ready to pounce. I didn't think she did look lazy. I thought she looked sort of calm and protective and quietly in control. That quiet confidence of, don't worry, it's okay. I'm here for you. Gertie's Law is brought to you by the Supreme Court of Victoria. Please subscribe and rate if possible wherever you get your podcasts. In later episodes, we're going to take a closer look at many of the misunderstood aspects of the Supreme Court, including sentencing, juries, the day-to-day working of a judge, and we'll examine some notable historic cases. And don't forget, you can come in and see this all play out for yourself. It's your court after all.